Good morning. It occurred to me this week that some of you are not visual learners. Some of you are aural learners, A-U-A-R-L, so you learn by hearing. So what that means is if I put a verse up on the screen for you to memorize, that doesn't help you if you're not a visual learner. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to quote this verse that we've been committing to memory over the last couple of weeks, two times. I think that was just celery that came out of my mouth. Did you see that? Did you see it, Bill? Did you see it? No, you didn't? I just announced it to everybody, so now, I've, now I'm a little embarrassed because you didn't see it, but now you know because I've told you. All right, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to quote this verse that we've been memorizing for the last two weeks, and then the third time I go through it, I'm going to gesture to you to fill in the blanks. So, for example, if I said the Toronto maple, what? Syrup. That's right. Perfect. So that's how we're going to do this. All right, so all Scripture is God-breathed and is faithful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This is what Paul writes to his protege, Timothy. He says, all scripture is God-breathed. Aren't you glad? That's not in the original, by the way, the aren't you glad part. All scripture is God-breathed and is faithful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Let's do it a third time. All scripture is and is faithful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and what? Nice, so much better than the first service. Those guys are a bunch of, you know, <laughs> training in righteousness so that the servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's right. Thank you so much for doing that with me. And what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks in our series, the B-I-B-L-E, is taking a look at just that, the scripture that is breathed out by God. And this morning, uh, we have a really great opportunity to hear from Dwayne Klein, and I want to introduce you to him. Uh, the first time I got the opportunity to kind of get familiar with Dwayne and his ministry was he was invited to the Greater Toronto Spiritual Life Convention this last January, which we hosted here at Bayview Glen. And a lot of our congregation uh, were a part of that uh, Greater Toronto Spiritual Life Convention, and Dwayne was one of the speakers. And folks from our congregation came to me and said, you got to hear this guy. He's great. So I hopped online, uh, got familiar with Dwayne's church. It's called Houston Street Baptist Church. He'll talk a little bit about what's going on in Hamilton at their church uh, at the front end of his message this morning. So you hear a little bit more about that. And what I heard from Dwayne online was just really extraordinary. Uh, in fact, this last year, he preached through a series on the Word of God uh, at, at his church. And one of the messages I heard was, what did Jesus say about the Scripture? What did Jesus say about the Scripture? And that's the sermon that I've asked Dwayne to deliver this morning because I, it's, it was so helpful for me. And then hearing it again this morning, so incredibly instructive. And so I'm so glad that Dwayne is here with us. So would you join me in a Big Baby Glen Church? Welcome for Dwayne Klein. It is uh, such a joy to be here with you guys today at Baby Glen Church. And I, could, I, I would also say, sorry, I, I didn't no, mention okay. this, but when Dwayne, 23 years ago, just before he was called to his church that he's been at for 23 years, was at Tyndale University, yeah. and he attended here at Bayview Glen, was here when Ken Opperman was here, when, here, here was Nelson, when Nelson Annan was here. And so essentially, even though uh, he's Baptist, it means we can trust him, is what that means, because right, he did right, right. attend here for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a joy to be here and to give back, because as a student, I came here on a number of occasions, and... Love being here in this church from we're sitting where you are now and so enjoyed being a part of this. And so it's a delight to be here with you today. Uh, just a, a couple things about our church. When God took me 23 years ago from what was then OBC, now Tyndale, 
uh, I assumed I would work in a rural area. I'd grown up in uh, just outside of Hamilton, about 40 minutes, and I assumed, having worked on a couple of farms, uh, having worked for the only corner store in town, that when I was done, God was going to call me rural. And God called me downtown Hamilton. At that time, it was the third poorest community in the country, with about 35 people at a church that was just dying. And um, it's, a, it's an old church. The, the whole church is about 7,000 square feet on a dirt basement. So lots of problems with the facility. And uh, there's about 300 of us now. Average age is about 28. Um, God's doing some great stuff. And we really care for the marginalized in our community. And so I have a display outside that talks about some of that. But some of the things we do is uh, at Christmas we'll offer hampers to 300 families in our neighborhood that could use some Christmas hampers. And so we'll bless them with those. Cost us like 40 grand to do something like that. But walk alongside of them, care for them in Jesus' name. And then in January, we'll invite all of them out to like an alpha-like study that's called Christianity Explored. And numbers of them will come. And every year God saves a couple of them, right? And we're delighted with God's work. Um, every week we hand out food and clothing to those that are more marginalized in our community. In the summer, we started 23 years ago a soccer league that this summer will have between 260 and 300 kids play in the league. And it's mainly for kids that otherwise couldn't afford a league. We do a gospel presentation at halftime. We'll sponsor any child that needs to be part of that. And all that information's on a table out there talking about that. But our new venture is because we were in a facility that's basement was dirt and uh, needed a new facility, we've been using the school board's uh, public school for the last few years, is we purchased a property about six years ago. We've been saving up to do this. And we're now about to build in the next two weeks. We're going to start on a new facility. It's $18 million. And um, we're, we're delighted. God's provided $14 million. This past week, God provided another check for a million dollars for the property. And uh, this facility, the reason it's so expensive, it includes 45 apartments for people that need supportive, affordable housing. So it includes apartments in the facility for people that need a place to live. And so we're looking... Um, we're still looking for donations. In fact, we're still praying for four million. I would take a check at the end of the service, and um, um, there's there's stuff outside there. But but like literally a million and a half to two million of this have come in of donations of 100, 150, 500. Another million or so have come in of checks have been like five thousand, ten thousand. And of course, there's been some larger checks of a million dollars that have come in to get us to the. 14 million, and we're praying to do this debt-free. But the witness that God has granted us, like a couple of years ago, I was asked by your mayor to be part of uh, the, the, one of the National Housing Days, the one here in Toronto. Got to present at that, got to present at one in Hamilton, been to a couple of others to talk, and, and, and you're a part of these National Housing Days. And what people want to know is, why would a church do this? And then at one point I'm asked the question, why, what kind of people give their hard-earned money to help people they don't even know? And the answer is, God's people do. That's what God's people do. God's people come alongside of people in Jesus' name and care for and offer them love and grace and hope and peace because that's what God's people do. And we're proud, thrilled that we're going to be able to house people. And then in addition to that, share with them the incredible love we have in Jesus Christ, believing that some are going to come to faith in him. And uh, so pray with us in that. And if you want some more information about our church, what we do, because uh, often when I go places to preach, I preach on justice and poverty and that kind of stuff. Um, but today the task at hand is what did Jesus say about the Bible? Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for Bayview Glen Church. It's a delight to be here today. Would you now take your word and challenge us, rebuke us, encourage us, train us, because your word has been breathed from you and is living and active. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
the three most important questions you will ever ask is this. Does God exist? Has he revealed himself? And has he spoken? Does God exist? Has he revealed himself? And has he spoken? I mean, does God exist or has the universe created itself? Was there a prime mover that set everything in motion? Or was the universe able to self-create? Right? We obviously as believers here this morning, at least for the most part, would believe God did it. God's the one who created it. It was his creative genius that allowed us to come into existence. Then has he revealed himself? Well, we believe that God has revealed himself in nature. God has shown up in nature. And so when you look at nature, you can see God's power. When you look at nature, you can see God's uh, design and his intellect. But God's also revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ supremely. Cloaked his deity with humanity and showed up. That's God. That's what God did. And has God spoken? Well, God's given us a book. God's chosen in his wisdom to grant us a book where he's spoken to us. But that today is greatly challenged. I mean, some people, even Christians that I meet, will say, well, this is just a good book. That's what it is. I mean, did God really speak to it? I don't know. This is just a good book. And it tells you how to live a good life. It tells you some things about Jesus. Some things are historically accurate. Some things aren't. Some people just think it's a good book. Right? Then you have another theory that would say, well, the Bible contains God's word. So it contains God's word, which means that you need to figure out which parts of it are God's word and which parts of it aren't God's word. Which parts of it are the things God said and which parts of it aren't the, God, the things God said. And then thirdly, you come to the place where we are where you believe this is God's word in its entirety, front to back. This is God's word to us. I mean, in fact, today there's a fourth category where people would say this is a dangerous book. Right? Several people out there would now say this is a dangerous book. You can see that. Re read what was going on in California recently. Right? Is this, a this is a dangerous book. That's what some would say. And it should be banned. You know, even in our country, a few years ago, numbers of people tried to ban the Bible because of some of the things that it says. Right? And so, lots of controversy around Scripture. So why does this matter? Why does what we believe about the Bible matter? I have a quote here from G.I. Packer. Let's listen to this. The problem with authority is the most fundamental problem that the Christian church ever faces. This is because Christianity is built on truth. That is to say, on the content of divine revelation. Christianity announces salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, in and through whom that revelation came to completion. But faith in Jesus Christ is possible only where the truth concerning him is known. And so we have here... The Bible very clearly telling us who Jesus is, who we are, and how we relate to God. That's why this is so important. This is so important because the most important things we know about God, Jesus, and us are found right here. So I would suggest today that the most important belief you have is what you believe about the Bible. Now some people say that can't be true. I mean, Dwayne, isn't the most important thing we believe is what we believe about Jesus? No. What? Well, is it, isn't the most important thing we believe what we believe about salvation? No. Now let me explain. You see, the Bible is what tells us about Jesus, what tells us about salvation. There are some things that you can look at, like I said earlier, if you look at nature. Nature will tell us some things about God, how powerful he is, that he has some divine attributes. If you take a look at history and you read, let's say, the works of Josephus, you can learn some things. Jesus existed. He died. 
so you can look at history and learn some things that are also taught in the Bible. But it's only in the Bible that we learn that God came down. It's only in the Bible that we learn that Jesus cloaked his deity with humanity and showed up. Where else would you learn that? It's only in the Bible that we learn that he lived a sinless life. It's only in the Bible that we learn that when he was on the cross, he didn't just die, but the wrath of the Father was actually placed on him, and he became sin so that we could become righteous. We only learn that in the Bible. It's only, in fact, in the Bible, though other historical uh, documents will talk about his death, it's only in the Bible that we find that three days later, the power of the Father raised him to life again. Because he'd never sinned, sin could not accuse him. Because he'd never sinned, Satan could not own him. Because he'd never sinned, death had no rights to him. And so three days later, the power of the Father raises him to life again, King of kings and Lord of lords. But the only way we know anything about the incarnation, that Messiah would come, and he came in the personal work of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sin on the cross, having taken our sin upon himself, that he did so perfectly, having never sinned, and so he conquered sin and Satan and death, and three days later was raised to life again, and that he's coming again. The only way we know any of that is because God wrote it down. That's it. And so what you believe about the Bible is the most fundamental thing to what you believe in your Christian faith. So Mike Polk, listen to this. The heart of the problem, though, is that we want everything measured by our words and not God's. The heart of the problem is we want everything measured by our words and not God's. And so we contest things, right? Did God really say that about divorce or remarriage? Did God really say that about the sanctity of life? Did God really say that about money? I'd love to do this when I go to campus groups. I speak at campus groups, mainly in southern Ontario, but sometimes across the country. And I'll get to campus groups, and they'll ask me to challenge them on something, usually around poverty and justice. So at some point, I'll ask the campus group, do you guys honor God with your wealth? Right? I'll just pick that area. They always want me to pick sexuality, right? But I'll, I'll, pick, I'll pick on money. And I'll say, you know, there's no exclusive clause in the Bible. When the Bible talks to us about honoring God with his wealth, there's no exclusive clause that, oh yeah, when you're a student for those four years or three years, depending on going to college or university, you don't have to honor God with your wealth. That's not there. But, you know, we want our words to somehow measure against God's words, and we'd like our words to be more. If you don't believe that's true, look at the ways you dishonor God. And in any way where you dishonor God, maybe in the way you honor him with your wealth. Maybe in the way you honor him or dishonor him with what you look at. Like if I, if I could today take your internet history and look at it, what would it say about you? What would it say about you? And so all of a sudden you realize that we want to we contest God. That's what happens. But Jesus here is at the heart of the issue. He's at the heart of the issue. Some would hold that everything should simply be measured by what Jesus has said. They contend that we may not know if the other authors of Scripture have always said what God has said, but we are fairly certain that what Jesus has said has been recorded in Scripture. So let me explain. These are what we would sometimes call red-letter Christians. And they say, what you should do is measure everything by what Jesus said in the Gospels, because you can trust that Jesus said that. Now I say, listen, Jesus had an incredibly high view of Scripture. I'm going to walk you through that right now. And if you come to the place where you think all you can trust is Jesus, you don't have much of the Bible. You don't have much of the Bible, right? So some people will say to me, you can't trust Paul. I'm like, okay, you can't trust the Apostle Paul. Why do you say that? Well, they don't like what Paul says about this or what Paul says about that, and they'll name me some issues. And I'm like, okay. So if you can't trust Paul, take out all of Paul's letters. 
But if you can't trust Paul, you can't trust Peter, because Peter really clearly says that what Paul is writing is Scripture. So you got to take out Paul, you got to take out Peter. If you take out Peter, you got to take out Mark, because Mark wrote on behalf of Peter. So now you've lost First and Second Peter, you've lost all the Paul's epistles, and you've lost Mark. But you can't stop there, because one book is written about Paul and Peter. That's the book of Acts. So you got to rip Acts out. Right? So now if you rip Acts out, you can't also trust Luke because Luke wrote Acts. So you got to lose Luke. So you got to lose Luke. you got to lose Acts. you got to lose First and Second Peter. you got to lose everything that Paul wrote. That doesn't leave you with a lot left. Right? And that all starts with someone saying, well, you can't trust Paul. I mean, I've been in this conversation with a number of people. I remember at one point I looked at the guy and said, I wrote it all down for him, right? And said, so this is what you got left in the Bible. He said, huh, that's not a lot left, is it? I said, no, it's not. So the answer is you got to be able to trust Paul. Like, what does Jesus say about Scripture? Because some people are saying we can only trust what Jesus said. And to our ears, that sounds really good because of who Jesus is. But can I tell you that if you can trust what Jesus says, let's look at what he says about the Bible itself. Now, there's a second thing that people can test. Sometimes what happens then is they actually don't even like what Jesus said. So I'm with another pastor who's just told me we can only trust what Jesus said. I'm just at that time preaching through the Gospel of Luke, and I'm in a portion where Luke's using judgment. And you have Jesus talking about, hey, don't fear the one or the ones who have the power to kill you. Fear the one who not only, or, or sorry, who after your body is gone has the power to throw you into hell. I tell you, fear him. And I said, here Jesus is really clear. That you don't just need to fear people because they can kill you. You need to fear God because God holds the keys to your eternal destiny. And this is what he said to me. Well, we don't know Jesus really said that part. So now not only are we questioning the red letter part, right? That maybe we only trust what Jesus said. But now it's also down to, can we even trust what Jesus said? So today let's take a look at what Jesus says or believes about Scripture. Number one, Jesus views Scripture as authoritative. Here are a few of these. Jesus views Scripture as authoritative. So the scene is John 10. Jesus has just declared that he's deity. He's just said he's the son of God. And people have picked up stones to stone him. They're about to execute Jesus. And Jesus quotes from an obscure passage in Psalm 82 as his defense. He comes to them with a passage that talks about how all the rulers are gods, how their end is going to come at some point, and how they're all sons of God, though one day they'll perish. And he says this in John chapter 10. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside or broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent him into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? He said even the Bible will talk about people as God's son. Even the Bible at times talk about people as small g gods. Jesus is saying, why are you going to stone me for saying I'm God's son? Well, the reason they were going to stone him for saying he's God's son is they knew Jesus wasn't just saying he was God's as in a small g God. They knew Jesus was claiming divinity. They knew Jesus was saying he was one with the Father. And they believed that no one could be one with the Father. So that was blasphemy. And blasphemy deserved death. So they picked up stones to kill him. But Jesus, in his defense, quotes from Psalm 82, saying, this isn't the first time you've heard this, though it is in this sense, because no one else could claim to be God. And in quoting Psalm 82, he says this, Scripture cannot be set aside. Scripture cannot be broken. That what God has said is binding. 
What God has said can be trusted. What God has said carries authority. That's what that means. And so we find that Jesus views Scripture as authoritative. Secondly, Jesus also views Scripture as everlasting, as eternal. Jesus doesn't see that Scripture will ever end. Listen to this. This is Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and on earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now I want you to note a few things about this. One, Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. I am the fulfillment of the law. That means that everything the law pointed to, everything the law talked about, is found in Jesus Christ. Secondly, he says, I want you to know that until heaven and on earth disappear, not the least letter, not the least stroke of a pen, nothing will disappear from the law until everything has been accomplished. He said the law will not be set aside until the work of Christ is finally done. And then he says this, so if any of you take away any of it, you will be least in the kingdom of heaven. So he's here really clearly says, Scripture is everlasting. Scripture is eternal. Now, when I say that, though Jesus never corrects a word from Scripture, he rightly applies it. Jesus never corrects a word from Scripture, though he rightly applies it. So when he's talking about fulfillment here, he's not saying that the same Old Testament laws that applied to Israel apply to us. Let me explain. First, let's start with this. When Jesus talks about not murdering, he says, you've heard it said you're not to murder, but I tell you don't even hate. He rightly applies the law. You've heard it said not to commit adultery. Don't have sex with someone who's not your spouse. I tell you don't even lust. He rightly applies the law. That's what he's doing. And we know he's fulfilled scripture in a couple of ways. One is this. No longer do we offer sacrifices to God. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. So in a church like this, there's no altar up here. There's no altar in a church like this because no longer do we need to bring animals in on our day of worship to worship God so they can be slaughtered and appease his wrath. His wrath was fully appeased by the Son on the cross. And then there are other laws that were there that were given that were given specifically for Israel as a nation. Some things would be the nationalistic dietary stuff around pork. That's an example. That's why Peter has the vision in Acts of being able to take and eat as he's going with the Gentiles. So some of you this morning that had eggs and bacon for breakfast, whether you had sausage or whether you had bacon or whether you had female bacon, you could say, thanks be to God, I can eat pork. Right? And we look at books like Galatians, Romans, Hebrews, to understand the fulfillment of Christ of the law. Now, in saying this, Christ is really clear. The word of God is everlasting. And at times we use scripture to explain scripture. But Christ is very clear. What God has said does not pass away. Does not pass away. So Jesus views scripture as authoritative. He also views it as everlasting. Thirdly, Jesus views scripture as historically accurate. He views scripture as historically accurate. He's there talking with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And this is what he says. 
Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want a sign from you. Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation looks or asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus here treats what happened to Jonah as historically accurate. He treats it as if it really occurred. Listen to this. The queen of the south will rise in, uh, sorry, at the judgment of this generation as well and will condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus in pointing out that he is greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, uses Jonah as an example and then the queen of Sheba who comes to see Solomon as an example recorded for us in the Kings. And he says these things really happen. Jesus treats scripture as historically accurate. He does so when he talks about David at times and some of the things that occurs in David's life. And you see that he treats this as historically accurate as real events that happen. Thirdly, Jesus views Scripture as God's very words. Now this is a bit confusing, so you got to listen to me for a minute. Jesus treats Scripture as God's very words. Jesus is talking at this point to the Pharisees. Matthew 19. As he's talking to the Pharisees, they're asking, hey, how, how does this whole divorce thing work? And when is it right to divorce a spouse? And what does that look like? They're trying to trap him. And Jesus, of course, gets into this whole thing of the sanctity of marriage and what that looks like. And finally, the disciples are like, well, and the Pharisees are like, whoa, like this is, this is really a hard word. And, and to the Pharisees, Jesus says this in his answer, Matthew 19. Haven't you read? Now that's a huge insult. Because the Pharisees were known as the ones who knew the law and knew the law inside out. The Pharisees were the people who were known to know God's law and be able to declare it to everyone. So when Jesus says, um, guys, uh, haven't you read? And then he starts into a quote. That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. Jesus not only says, haven't you read, but then he says, listen, I'm only going to go back, I'm going to go way back to Genesis 2. So to you guys, experts in the law, did you get as far as the second chapter of the Bible? Or no? Like, to you experts in the law, did you get as far as Genesis 2 or did you stop at Genesis 1? Like, to you who are supposed to know the Bible inside out, did you stop in Genesis 1 or did you keep reading? Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, you may wonder why I quote this. But if you open your Bible back to Genesis 2 for a minute and you look, you will see that there's no quotations. You will see that this is just Moses or whoever wrote the book of Genesis, their narration. But here Jesus says, at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said. So did God not say it? I mean, it's just Moses narrating in the Old Testament. What's going on here? What's going on is this. Jesus, in declaring this, is saying that whatever was said in the Old Testament, God has said. Whatever is said in the Old Testament, God has said. 
And when he's quoting this, even though it's Moses' narration, without quotes from God the Creator, Jesus gives it, attributes it to God the Creator because he knows that whatever is written in Scripture, God has said. Is that not good news? He knows it can be trusted because he knows God said it. So Jesus then views Scripture as God's very words given to us. Next. Jesus views Scripture as inspired by God. Jesus views Scripture as inspired by God. Again, Mark 12. While Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, he, uh, he's asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, again, in controversy, comes to the point and he says, you know what? Why are you saying that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is clear. The Holy Spirit is the one who gave David his words to speak. So you have the word of God being authoritative. That's how Jesus views it. Everlasting. Historically accurate. God's very words inspired by God. You see how high a view Jesus has of Scripture? So when people come to me and say, well, Dwayne, we just got to trust what Jesus said. You know, not sure about Paul. Not sure about Isaiah. Not, but we know what Jesus said. I'm like, well, well what Jesus said is he views all of Scripture as God's word to us. Next. Jesus views Scripture as the power of God. Jesus views Scripture as the power of God. The Sadducees, right, parallel to the Pharisees, but the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So the Sadducees come to Jesus. They've got this problem. They know that the law says that if a man gets married and he dies, and there's been no male offspring, that the brother of that man, if there's a marriage, if, there, if, there's a, um, if there's a brother, is to take that widow home, make her his wife as well, even if he's married, and provide offspring so that there's someone to carry on his brother's line. So they come up with a problem. There's seven brothers. First one gets married to a woman. They don't have any kids, no sons. He dies. Goes through all seven. And there's no, there's no kid. So whose wife is she in the resurrection? That's the problem they brought to Jesus. And Jesus says this. This is the power of Scripture. Jesus says, are you, uh, are, are you not in error because you do not know the Scripture or the power of God? Jesus is saying, you're in error here because you don't understand Scripture. You don't understand God's power. Now let me explain this. My wife and I own a, own a, own a storefront downtown Hamilton. She repurposes furniture. So we have four kids, wonderful kids, and our youngest are twins. And when they were born, Jewel and Ivy, they were one pound and 13 ounces and two pounds and nine ounces. And when they were born eight years ago, the doctors looked at us and said, we don't think these girls will live. They're now eight, and uh, they're wonderful. They both suffer uh, with severe hearing loss, but they're in school. They're doing a great job, and they're a delight. In fact, yesterday, I opened up our pool, so be ready for today. We're having our community group over with a big barbecue, and and uh, for always around on Victoria Day weekends, so they're going to hang out. And my girls will swim in that pool to there. They'll just be delighted tonight in that pool. And they're very thankful I have a heater because yesterday the pool was 60 when we started. When I left this morning, it was 74. And they're hoping it's by about 82 by the time I get back later today. Um, they said, Dad, just turn it up a bit more. Um, my wife's like, turn it up to 90. You can turn it down when you come home. I'm like, listen, we're not putting the pool heat up to 90. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, sauna, a sauna, a spa. That's a jacuzzi. That's not a pool. Um, some of you are disagreeing with me. You think your pool should be 90. You can contend with your own heating bills. So, so the twins are now in school full time. And I say to my wife, what do you want to do? She, she's trying to figure out what to do next. And as we're trying to figure it out, she says, I'd like to use my creative side. 
I'm like, do you want to go back and work with adults with special needs with what she did for years? She's like, well, I would, but I really want to use my creative side. So we opened up a store two and a half years ago. Now I have a few employees. And I could say Vintage Charm, that's our store, is successful because of Amy and her employees. But that's two entities. I could say it's successful because of Amy and her husband because he does all the back-end integration to make sure we don't go bankrupt, right? Um, it's true. I, I, I make sure that she doesn't go bankrupt because if you asked her today how much is in the bank account for the, for the business, she would say, ask Dwayne. That's honestly her answer. She would say, I'm not even sure how to get to it. I'm like, I've showed her so many times how to get to it. Like, app on your phone, how do you press this, do this. I've, anyway, and she's like, does it matter? I'm like, it, it really does matter. But as long as I know, it's fine. So, but here's the answer. Vintage Charm has been successful because of Amy and her creative genius. So if it's Amy and me, that's two entities. If it's Amy and her employees, that's her and other entities. But if it's Amy and her creative genius, it's the same thing. Does that make sense? That's what's going on here in Mark 12. You are in error because you do not know scriptures or the power of God. He's not saying there is scripture and the power of God. We know the word of God is living and active. He's saying you do not know scripture, which is the power of God. Jesus is equating that. Now, how do we know that? Let me, let me move on. We find Jesus in the wilderness. He's there being tempted by the enemy. As he's in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy, we find the power of Scripture over Satan, right? There we find Jesus in the wilderness with the enemy. He is the living word, right? We find that in John 1. But he's also the written word because the word, pre-incarnate, John 1, became flesh. The word, the written word, became, or the spoken word, if you will, the spoken word became the living word. So the word, that's Jesus, who was the spoken word, becomes the living word. And when he's there in the wilderness with the enemy as the spoken word, he could have just declared to Satan, be gone, and he would have been gone. Because Jesus has authority over the enemy. But he doesn't. Instead, what he does do is he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes himself to the enemy. Jesus so believes in the power of Scripture, of the written word that was spoken, that the spoken word, who is the living word, speaks that truth to the enemy so that the enemy is defeated. Because Jesus himself believes that there is power in the written word of God being spoken. Right? So that's what he does. So Scripture... He sees, Jesus views Scripture as the power of God. He uses it over the enemy. But he also sees it powerfully as a witness. We come to Jesus telling this parable. parable is of a rich man and Lazarus. The rich man had a beautiful big property, according to the parable, and Lazarus sat at his gate. The irony of this is the rich man is not named, and Lazarus is. When they die, the rich man ends up in hell, Lazarus ends up in Abraham's bosom, another term for paradise or heaven. And we have this encounter where the rich man is debating with Abraham, saying, man, this is an awful place. Could you send Lazarus back to life again so that he could tell my brothers and warn them of this place? And this is the response in Jesus' parable. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone comes back from the dead and goes to them, they will repent. He, that's Abraham, said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, 
they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Did you hear that? They have Moses and the prophets. What's Jesus saying? That what God has said takes priority even over miracles. What God has said is more important, is more powerful than even miracles. Satan has so confused us. Listen, I am not a cessationist. I fully believe that God to this very day works in miraculous ways. I have seen it. Our elders have laid hands on people, prayed for their healing, and we have watched God heal people. Like we have watched God heal people. In no way do I discount the miraculous. But here, very clear in the words of Jesus, if you're the Christian that looks for the miraculous proof, if you're the Christian that follows Jesus because what he can do for you, if you're the Christian that wants Jesus to do something miraculous, something powerful, something Jesus says, you've missed the whole point. You've missed this whole thing. You've got the law and the prophets. The most important thing in your life is not God doing a trick. The most important thing in your life is the word of God. And Jesus says, even if someone rises to life again, even if someone goes back, they will not believe, but they have the law and the prophets. That means that we should be using the word of God as we declare the truth of God to the world around us. Is that not true? Oh, I long for God to show up. I long for his presence in my life. And I long for God to show up when I'm encountering other people. Because if God's not there, it's nothing. But God's also there in his word. And so we use the word wisely as we declare the truth of the gospel to people around us. And so you have this incredible thing where Jesus, who is the spoken word, will use the written word even when he's the living word. Did you catch that? Where Jesus, who is the spoken word, will use the written word even when he's the living word. When Jesus was living among us, he chose to use and quote from the written word even though he himself is the spoken word. That should tell you how powerful God's word is. And so when Jesus was here, he saw his mission to fulfill scripture. Last one. Right? In his ministry. So note this from Luke, Luke 4. But then he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me uh, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were on him, fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus saw his ministry as a fulfillment of God's word. And so he submitted himself to it. He submitted himself. The living word submitted himself to the written word because he was the one who had spoken the word. But that tells you his view of scripture. In his death, Jesus took the twelve aside and said to them, Hey, guys, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. I won't read the rest of that. But did you catch that? Everything that is written about the Son of Man, or by the prophets about the Son of Man, will be fulfilled. Jesus saw his life as being a fulfillment of Scripture. Again, Luke 22. It is written, he will be numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. 
But you find the same in the resurrection, where the two guys on the road to Emmaus are disillusioned by what's just happened. Jesus says to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them all that was said in the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus himself, as a living word, submitted himself to the written word. Though he was the one who spoke it. So that makes Jesus unique. Look at this. Jesus is the author, centerpiece, and fulfillment of Scripture. He views Scripture as God's word to us. He measures everything by it. So when people come to me and argue and say, well, Dwayne, I'm just a red-letter Christian. I just want to believe what Jesus said. I said, well, here's what Jesus believes about the Bible. Jesus believes that Scripture is authoritative, eternal, historically accurate, inspired, naturally God's very power God's very words to us, which need to be submitted to and obeyed. That's what Jesus believed. Jesus believed that scripture was authoritative, eternal, historically accurate, inspired, naturally God's power even to defeat Satan. God's very words which are to be submitted to and obeyed. That's what Jesus believed about the Bible. And if Jesus believed that, I can believe no less. Amen? And so what we believe about the Bible becomes supremely important. Supremely important. So what? So what does this mean? A couple of things as I close. Number one, do you believe you can trust Jesus today? Do you believe that the God who's taken your life out of a pit and put your feet on a rock can be trusted? Do you believe that the God who stopped at nothing to save you, is that not good news? The God who stopped at nothing to save you, the God who cloaked his deity with humanity, who left eternity and came into this mess. The God who would not let poverty stop him, who would not let hunger stop him. The God, though he was sinless, who had to become sin on the cross, who would not let the wrath of the Father being poured out on him stop him. I mean, the great physician bled. The author of life died. The God who would let nothing stop him, not sin, not Satan, not death, not separation from the Father. He finally cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you? And he was forsaken on the cross so we could be welcomed into his family. Is that not great news? The God who would stop at nothing to save you. That while you were his enemy, he would die for you. And not only does he save you, that would just be good news, isn't it? But God then not only saves us, but grants us adoption into his family. We are his children, his sons and daughters, because the Father so loves us that when he sees us, what he sees is Jesus Christ. That's how much the accomplished work of Christ has affected things. That's why God calls us his children. Because when he sees us, he sees his son. That God who would go to any extent to save you, that God who would stop at nothing to reclaim you, that God who would redeem you regardless of the cost to himself, that God can be trusted. And if you can trust God with your soul, you can trust everything he said. This is his word to us. And he's not out to ruin your life. And he's not out to ruin your finances. And he's not out to destroy your business. He's out to give you life and give it to you in abundance. Any God who would go to that extent to save you is not out to get you. That God is out for your good. Praise his name. That's what God's out for. And so he's written a book. Is that not good news? He's written a book. 
And so if you say, who is God? He's told us. How do I know him? He's told us. Who is Jesus? He's told us. What has he done? He's told us. Is he coming back? He's told us. It's right here, and he's given it to us. And so your pastor has masterfully led you in a series on Scripture. Because our churches need to be awakened today again to what God has said. And maybe as you've been going through this series, you realize, man, I've stopped reading the Bible. I stopped a while ago. Or I just started to pick and choose what I believed. I, I, I believed this, but not that. I, I, I held to this, but not that. Or I, and I'm not saying, like I said earlier, there are things in the Bible that we need to understand in light of other things. Right? There are some Old Testament laws, like the sacrificial system, we don't hold to anymore because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. That's not the only thing. And Pastor Lucas is, over the next few weeks, going to explain some of that to you and help you understand some things around interpretation. But it starts with this premise, man, God, this is your word, and I believe it. And maybe today, it's been a while since you've read it, and you need to go home today and say, God, I'm going to crack this book open. Find your favorite book of the Bible. I don't care what it is. Right? One of my buddies was like one time, it's Judges. I'm like, well, read it away, man. He's like, it's violent. I'm like, that's probably why you like it. And, uh, and it's God's word, so ask God to bless you as you read it. Okay, man, I'll start in Judges. And then what? I said, maybe flip to Ephesians after that and pray for your soul. No, I'm kidding. Um, start in Judges, right? Then go to Ephesians. Whatever, whatever it would be. Your favorite, and start today and say, Spirit of God, would you grant me a love for the Word of God again? Would you grant me a view that Jesus has of the Word again? God, the world has so gripped my heart that I've stopped believing how important this book is. And through this series, I pray, and even through today, that God will have so gripped your heart that you're going to walk out of here and say, this is God's word to me today, today. I trust it like I trust you. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you today and we confess that our world so easily dissuades us. God, we question all kinds of things, and yet we know you are secure, you are true, and we can trust you. And because we can trust you, we can trust what you have said. And Jesus, we thank you that you have, you have, you do have such a high view of Scripture. And God, we confess that so often our view of Scripture has fallen and faltered. Today, oh God, would you grip our hearts again with a high view of your word. Today, oh God, would you grant us again a high view of what you have said. And God, instead of wanting our words to somehow be what matters, would we realize that you have given a word and it's what matters and our lives need to be aligned to you not your words aligned to us and so today oh God would you grant us by your spirit in our hearts a fresh love for your word would we trust it because we trust you we ask in Jesus name Amen <laughs>